With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. He tries it out. He decides that this is really interesting. Right then and there, he wrote up an email on his phone and it said, hey guys, really cool AR startup, first class of Jimmy Iovine. You have to check this out. I'm investing. And he sent that email to Max Levchin, who was one of the founders of PayPal, Will I Am, Ashton Kutcher, um, and a couple other people. That email is my phone background to this day. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we're talking to Ben Taft, co-founder of Mira Labs, a smartphone-powered augmented reality company. But before your mind starts to wander to Black Mirror-esque dystopias, let me extrapolate. Mira builds cost-effective technology solutions to improve everyday business functions. This technology is helping businesses right now overcome distance and circumstance. Workers that deal with complex engine assembly or navigate the depths of hazardous mine shafts can now have remote experts directly interact with whatever the worker sees, all completely hands-free. Mirror's incredible success came from humble beginnings. It actually came from a fishbowl, but we'll get to that later. At just 24 years old, Ben has risen to incredible levels of success in an incredibly short period of time. His tech has helped create more productive, safer work environments. And with the help of augmented reality, these changes can be implemented from quite literally anywhere in the world. While this anywhere in the world mentality has always been important to keep a globalized economy running smoothly, this concept has proved vital in the age of Corona. But Ben didn't get to where he is today by casually breaking his piggy bank and flushing a dead fish down the toilet. No, he has been committed to entrepreneurship in the American dream essentially since birth. These concepts were seemingly infused into his childhood. Um, were, were, uh, they didn't quite, uh, they were not right, uh, but they did everything in their power to expose me to that. And you know, get fun. Yeah, I mean, I think my experience growing up there was probably a bit different than most. And the reason being is my parents, they're immigrants. Not only did they sort of immigrate, they actually fled. So it was the Soviet Union. And uh, my mom landed in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin as a refugee and had $17 and didn't know how to speak English. You know, my father uh, came as a, as a refugee, but got a scholarship uh, at UCLA. And so my, my parents ended up meeting. They settled down in the Bay Area. So growing up, I had definitely a lot of exposure to the kind of Bay Area tech scene. My father was a technologist, right? He was always in IT. He was part of startups. So I kind of got that exposure. But my mother was a classical pianist and a teacher. Yeah, so it definitely bred like a different sort of mindset where I felt this deep fulfillment in pursuing the American dream that my parents came here for, right? 
So even from a young age, that made me very entrepreneurial. When my parents couldn't really afford to give me an allowance, it forced me into a different set of constraints where I now had to figure out how to create my own money so I could exist at the same sort of comfort level that was around me. When I was 11, I think I started my first company. And what I did was I had a, a friend whose mom owned a company that manufactured clothing and t-shirts. I gave all my life savings to my friend's mom and had her manufacture me about a hundred t-shirts. And I did everything in my power to sell each and every one of those t-shirts to a kid at my school. And I was able to double my life savings doing that. And then I did it again with the second line of t-shirts and then did it again. So even at this young age, I was already sort of figuring out how to make money that way, right? was a hustler. And this hustler mindset was born out of a desire to equalize his social and economic status. His friends' families could buy experiences that his family just couldn't afford. Thus, to enter those social circles, he quickly realized he'd have to make his own money. However, in this somewhat shallow pursuit, he unearthed passion. A passion to create. Definitely, it felt like it was a piece of myself. It was like I put a piece of myself out into the world and I had so closely identified with it. And that was the first time I felt that feeling of creation and creating demand for what it is that I've created and building a business and getting the flywheel spinning. That was the first time I felt that sense of complete fulfillment in that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess growing up, I played in middle school, I felt a very mild version of that. But that feeling really started when I was 14. And the reason being is that was the sort of the second go around at creating a business. The first was just a quick t-shirt brand. Yeah, I got a little bit of heat for it from people at school. But when I was 14, I launched a music blog. In middle school, most of us are terrified to differentiate ourselves, to do anything outside the norm. Keep your head down, fit in. That conformist mantra was protection. At least it was protection for me in my middle school days. If you repeated it enough times, you could avoid the perils of the playground. But Ben didn't subscribe to this dogma. He had thrust a piece of himself into the world of this teacher business, but it wasn't necessarily a key component of his identity. Thus, the flack he got for it didn't faze him. Music, on the other hand, was ingrained into his very soul. Growing up, I played classical piano. 
my sister was 12 years older than me. And so I was really exposed to great music of her era. Artists like Sublime and Limp Bizkit and that genre of music was really bestowed upon me by her. And so by the time I was old enough to start formulating my own opinions in music, I already felt like it was pretty broad. And so it started just being a pianist growing up. It was developed further by my sister. And then by the time I was my own individual, I felt like I had been exposed to so many different aspects of music where I could kind of discover myself. Ben began to explore entrepreneurial endeavors that were more closely intertwined with his identity. Again, he wanted to put part of himself into the world, and this next venture would push forward an integral aspect of Ben's identity. This made Ben more vulnerable to the pointed attacks of his peers. Fearless, he charged forward. And stemming from a consummation between entrepreneurship and his love of music, his next venture was born. Filthy Slaps. It essentially was a group of authors and curators and tastemakers, and these were students. And these people would follow that, and you could follow particular authors or artists. So it was really a music discovery platform that connected independent musicians with the high school and college demographic nationwide. Filthy slaps. Like in our town, it meant good music. Man, this is a slap. Or like, oh, this is so filthy. Like that that kind of lingo was being tossed around. And so we said, yeah, let's just call it filthy slaps. At that time, it, it meant a lot to me. And um there were kids, you know, two or three grades older than me that would just like absolutely hammer me for, for this. They would just give me hell. They would make so much fun of me. I'd see them out and they would just be, they would just taunt me about it. I got so much heat for it and people made so much fun of me for it on social media and to my face and behind my back. And um, I have a theory called the curve of shit. And what that is, is I think that there's a kind of a life cycle when you start something new, you want to start a company, you want to start a project, you want to start a brand, whatever it is. And you put yourself out there and your first product naturally sucks. It's a reflection of yourself and people start to make fun of it or whatever. And you have to take shit for so long until you get to a certain tipping point and you've taken enough shit and you've gotten your product or your company or whatever to a certain point that's far enough along where then it all flips and people kind of start to go, oh shit. Um, wow. It took a lot of shit to work through to get there. Ben survived the curve of shit. After a few failed attempts, he had summited the mountain, reaching a peak where the jeers of his classmates were distant echoes below the clouds. As his peers gazed up in astonishment at all Ben had accomplished, they were forced to face the fact that their taunts had been misguided. Ben was accruing some much-deserved respect as he prepared to move on to new, more exciting ventures.
With that business, I had already been sort of checked out in a way. You know, we already sort of decided to wind it down. So the emotional attachment started to kind of decouple itself from the business anyways, and we were sort of ready for it. So in my mind, I was already kind of ready for the next thing and I was ready to start the next business. And I already had some ideas of what that would be. So at this point, I just felt ready to sell it. I didn't even feel that bittersweet about it. Just felt like a really solid conclusion to tie the bow on that chapter and say this was a success and here's what happened and I worked super hard and Kean worked super hard over the last three or four years and we took all of the shit from you a-holes who just gave us so much shit we got to this point stuck it to them tied a bow on it announced it and it was just clean Ben had poured part of his soul into filthy slaps But by the time the company was ready to be sold, he felt a certain detachment from the product that he created. Rather than conflate his identity with any single project, Ben ascribed to the identity of an entrepreneur. This allowed him to think more rationally when he inevitably had to move forward. He had had fun, he had learned a lot, and he would make a profit. It was time to start thinking about that next step, college. I knew I wanted to go somewhere where I could be entrepreneurial. Where can I go to build a startup? Where can I go to build a company? Where can I go to build a network? Those were my priorities. The biggest blessing was when I was a junior in high school, they had just announced the new Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine Academy at USC. And the timing coincided with my college admission process such that I could apply to be in the very first class of it. And here I was saying like, I hate the classroom. I don't learn in the classroom. I'm not academic. I want to go somewhere to just start a company and meet people. And then it's like, boom, Dr. Dre, Jimmy Iovine, start a school for 25 students. And it's all about innovation and starting companies and design and like all these cool things. So it was like this like miracle from heaven and my prayers were answered and here it was. With his sights set on the Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine Academy at USC, Ben followed Dr. Dre's lead and tried his hand at creating devices to enhance the listening experience. Instead of Beats by Dre, it was Bluetooth by Ben. At the time, Bluetooth speakers were just coming to market. Bluetooth speakers were like a luxury and they were really small usually. And people had these like massive great speakers, but they had an aux cord. So I said, okay, why don't I just invent a device that fits on your keychain that you can basically take that aux cord and plug it into this little device and then connect your phone wirelessly to that device via Bluetooth to basically convert any speaker into a Bluetooth one. I spent my senior year after I'd sold Filthy Slaps just designing that product. I convinced the school to give me an office space on campus and I ran a Kickstarter campaign and raised like $40,000 for it. The push to create this product might have been initially prompted by a more shallow desire to strengthen his university application, but he would soon stumble upon death. This echoes the transition that occurred back when he was 11. Back then, entrepreneurship was born from a monetary pursuit to equalize his social status. But that was until Ben transitioned to placing intrinsic value in the process. Creation for the sake of an application soon transitioned to joy. Joy that was rooted in the process of invention. Ben realized that he loved to create products. And the Academy? The Academy noticed. I opened this email and it just had a link. It was like, hey, here's a quick you know, video from the Ivy Young Academy, click it. And it was Dr. Dre and Jimmy Ivy sitting facing the camera. And the first 
thing that they said in that 30 second video was, hey Ben, congratulations. And then as soon as they said that, I like lost my mind. My parents thought like something, somebody died. Like they were like, what's going on? And I was like, I got in, I got in the academy. They um, exceeded all of my expectations astronomically in ways I didn't predict. Being able to meet the people that I did, become friends with the people I did, it drew a very like-minded individual to this program. For someone to take the risk and be part of the first class and, and really want to dedicate themselves to it, like they had to know that this was for them. We learned to like collaborate in such incredible ways. We learned so much from each other and, and that helped everybody understand what they're an expert at and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. I definitely became even more true to myself being entrepreneurial and, and business-minded. And I learned my natural leadership abilities that like those really came out through the program. Most importantly, I, I learned to not feel ashamed of those things. I, I think as a kid, you're self-conscious and, you know, growing up in an environment where people make fun of you for X, Y, and Z, I, I felt like I could be my, myself in these ways. I think that in retrospect, I would say that my identity crisis was consistently happening until I got to college. I think that I had these passions and I was doing them, but I was trying to be popular. I was trying to be cool. Like I didn't play sports really. I didn't care about sports. I didn't care about the things that other people cared about. I didn't fit particularly well into a specific friend group. I was kind of an outcast and just doing my things. And and that's why I was having an identity crisis because I felt like I either had to conform. But when I got to the academy, I had so much clarity. It was a, it was a transition period where like in the course of six months or even freshman year, like my identity crisis went away and I felt like this is who I am. And now you know, the friends that I surround myself with, they're appreciating that this is me. contrast to his high school classmates, the university social circle provided an environment that nurtured creativity instead of stifling it. Ben was finally free. His new classmates celebrated each other's achievements. They reveled in what set them apart and applauded the entrepreneurial spirit. Ben had found his pocket of the world, and he was thriving. The summer after freshman year, a buddy of mine said, hey, can you help me grab like a designer and a developer uh, and come up to the Bay Area? I brought a buddy of mine from the academy who, who really spent that summer teaching me about augmented reality. It was so obviously the future, and that was exciting to me. That just rang like opportunity. This is the next computing paradigm. If I'm not working on this, I'm wasting my time. We got back to school sophomore year and, uh, you know, we, we recruited a couple of our other buddies and put together this sort of prototype before we created, you know, Mirror Anything. We actually formed a little company called Elysio. And what we were doing was we built a piece of display technology. So here we were, we had like no idea, you know, much about building a business or a company or anything, but we were just curious. And we had this piece of technology that we were convinced was so great. And that was going to like change everything. And in reality, I didn't do any of that. But we did probably 10 pitch competitions and we went around town, ruthlessly staying up all night to answer all the pitch competition questions and get our pitches ready. And you know how many we won? 
zero. Ben was living out the origin story of a stereotypical founder, grinding away in tight quarters with a team fueled by top ramen and sheer willpower. Having been bullied previously for pursuing his passions, Ben had grown desensitized to the judgment of others. He just went for it. At the outset, the team didn't know what they were doing, but Ben relishes wading into the unknown. What's more is he seeks failure. That's how he learns. Ben gains nothing from sitting down at a hard desk in a stuffy room filling in multiple choice answers. The academy forgoes the traditional education system because the real world doesn't value multiple choice answers. The people that end up changing the world give themselves the license to get it wrong. Thus, the academy encourages students like Ben to go out into the world and pitch and fail and fail again and again. Only by surviving many rounds of trial and error did Ben's resilience pay off. He was finally rewarded with his first successful pitch. Um, so we were just bashing our head against the wall. We won zero dollars until the Ivy Young Academy had a pitch competition and we won $10,000. And this is the best day of my life and we made it. We made it. This is done. That's it. Like what they saw was okay here are, here's a group of kids that are just relentless and they are so convinced that this has to be the truth and they will stop at nothing to get this done and when we pitched that to them i think that was compelling enough for them to say okay whatever they're building now is not the thing but maybe just maybe if we give them this ten thousand dollars it'll be a stepping stone to figuring something else out and it was and so we got that prize it was on my 20th birthday i thought we made it i was like we did it we got ten thousand dollars this is the best day of my life and we were just getting started. When Ben embarks on an entrepreneurial venture, he's only ever selling two things, his latest innovation and himself. He's a kid abounding with sheer determination and a knack for looking forward. Ben has a burning passion that could melt even the coldest hearts. These initial investors weren't entirely sold on the product, but they were sold on Ben. And the euphoric high that came with Ben's triumph did not slow his relentless pursuit of knowledge. In fact, it spurred it further. Most people would pause after reaching the peak to admire the view, but Ben, Ben was not like most people. We had all dedicated our summers to just learning about AR and VR as much as we could. Matt in Montana, they would go and, and they worked, they actually built their own VR agency and they had a contract from Sony. And at the same time, I went to a company called Daiquiri and I had an internship there. So we were all able to learn about the technology side of, of mixed reality. I was able to learn about the, the business side and where the use cases were. And that, that's your like building a startup in the garage moment when you're eating ramen and like you're working till three in the morning, you have day jobs. Like that was so important for us to build that character. We would basically go out and intern, you know, nine to five. And then we'd come back to Matt's dorm room in AE Pi at USC. And we would start work at 6 p.m and we would work till probably two in the morning, every night. We didn't really know what we were doing. We weren't that productive, but we were just working, building and experimenting and, and just doing all these different things. Those are the times where they're so grueling at the time, but in retrospect, you realize like those are the most important times. 
Ben's work ethic was boundless and his passion unparalleled. The frat house of AEPI was their lab, a place to tinker, to build, to experiment. Parties and all the trappings of college life were replaced by semi-focused all-nighters. But Ben had no qualms about working into the AMs. In fact, he relished these grueling times. It was in these long hours that he found himself and a team. The team was aiming to build a product, but honestly, I don't think that's what really mattered. The cramped quarters facilitated a depth of connection. This connection built a support system, a camaraderie that would be the most important asset to iterate towards Mirror's working prototype, and ultimately, success. There was a pitch competition that they, that they brought us to. One of the judges for that pitch competition was Nolan Bushnell. And Nolan Bushnell started Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. And we all agreed that the goal of this is to just get this in front of Nolan Bushnell. And so we went forth and we showed up that day and um, we pitched. You know, the judges would hold up a sign and like rate it afterwards. You know, everyone else got greens and whatever. And, and we finally went and pitched and everyone was red, red, red. And then Nolan Bushnell was yellow. A whole crowd voted at the end of the day of like who was the best startup and uh, we got like one vote out of the 200 people that were there and I think it was one of my co-founders moms that were like in the crowd supporting us or whatever so by like all measures we like completely blew it like we're still making no sense to anybody nothing that we're working on is viable it's ridiculous but Nolan Bushnell held up a yellow sign so we we got the chance so we went up and we talked to Nolan Bushnell and we said what do you think and he said I think that what if you figured out a way to build a headset for $100? And we said, uh, okay, that's impossible. But thanks for the advice. <laughs> and we left. And um, we thought about that for the next couple of weeks. We said, well, is there a way to make a $100 device? Is there a way to do that? And the first thing we started to do and at this point, by the way, this was technically a pivot in the company. We said, okay, we're going to stop building the display technology. We're going to start building a headset. And what we started to do was order smartphone components. Eventually, after trying that for a few nights over and over again and failing collectively, we basically said, guys, we're just ordering smartphone components so that we can reassemble a smartphone and put it inside this headset. What if we just figure out how to make it powered just by the smartphone altogether? That was the aha moment. And so the first thing that we did was Montana uh, 3D printed a case that would hold an iPhone in place. We built that prototype and we couldn't afford the optics. So what we did was we figured out all the, the measurements and the calculations of what that curvature needed to be. Then we scoured the internet for clear plastic that matched that same radius of curvature. And we found these $10 plastic fish bowls on Amazon and matched that radius of curvature perfectly. So we ordered these fish bowls, cut these square lenses out of them, caught glued them onto these 3D prints, and we put an iPhone in, boom. We had built exactly what no one said. We had built the $100 AR headset. We held it up to our face and we looked through it and we saw a hologram. We brought it back to no one. <laughs> we said, look, we built it. We pulled two all-nighters in a row preparing a demo to show him. It was just like, great, you did it. And uh, he complimented our work ethic. He's like, I I've only seen a couple entrepreneurs with this level of work ethic. You know, he said, like, this is the kind of behavior that, you know, I saw like Bill Gates do back in the day.
there's a moment when you just know, okay, I've made it to the next level. And in that moment, when you feel yourself just get to the level, just right, just like that, you get the academy admission, you get the $10,000, you get Nolan Bushnell. These like step function changes in taking you to the next level, like that is the feeling that you get in that moment. And it gets harder and, and the, the challenge becomes greater. And the thing that takes you to the next level is more and more impossible every time you do it. But just that feeling of leveling up is what it was. If a yellow from Nolan Bushnell tossed fuel on Ben's entrepreneurial flame, imagine what a comparison to Bill Gates from that same guy must have done. There were moments where Ben seemed to be approaching a dead end and he couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But this validation reaffirmed his pursuits. It blasted a hole through the mountain and let the light flood in. Despite enduring countless failures, this one moment of affirmation and clarity was all it took for Ben to eliminate the doubts that were seeping through his seemingly impenetrable resilience. Little did he know that this milestone was just the beginning. We went to we went to Jimmy Iovine and we built a demo where you put on the goggles and you and you looked at this record and then out from it would pop a hologram with a TV on it that you could like rotate and it was playing the music video and you could select what song to play. And it was hilarious because it was like an iPhone slapped into a 3D print with a fishbowl lens. And it was really compelling. Like it was really pretty amazing. And to this day, probably one of the coolest demos we've ever built. <laughs> and we showed it to him. His response was, was almost similar to the panelists when we won that first $10,000 prize from the Ivy Academy. It was kind of like a, yeah, I don't really, you know, this doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, I don't really know what this is. You know, maybe you build some games on it. Who knows? And Jimmy, in that moment, I think he made a decision that wasn't, can they go sell this product? But it was more like, does this team have a vision? And in that moment, he made that decision and agreed to put in the first $50,000 angel investment into the business. That was definitely another one of those levels. So we get this $50,000 from Jimmy and we have this prototype, we have this money committed. At this point, we had just gotten into the USC incubator and we had a buddy from USC, uh, his name was Zach. So we bring our buddy Zach in and we go, hey, Zach, you know, check out this demo, like put on this headset. And he was very generous to give us an introduction to somebody who he was connected with. And that person was Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce. Emails Mark and says, hey, you know, crazy prototype, you gotta check this thing out. And Mark said, okay, yeah. I basically sat there and I pitched to him for 15 minutes. He tries it out. He decides that this is really interesting. Right then and there, he wrote up an email on his phone and it said, hey guys, really cool AR startup. First class of Jimmy Iovine. You have to check this out. I'm investing. And he sent that email to Will I Am, Ashton Kutcher, Max Levchin, who was one of the founders of PayPal, um, and a couple other people. He sent us around town and we just ran around San Francisco. Then we met with Jeremy Stoppelman and we met with Max Lutchen, the investment team. And we met with X, Y, and Z. We met with all these different people. We like rounded up all these angel investments and we get back to LA. William was committed and we're like sitting in William's studio and Mark Benioff's emailing us and he's putting in a quarter million dollars and all this stuff. And we're getting all these angel investors to just start throwing us all this money, like boom, boom, boom. And, and it's like, we broke through into this like stratosphere of these incredible individuals. And we're just like, oh my God, like we made it. We, we meet with this one firm uh, called Troy Capital and uh, we meet with them and they, you know, they gave us a term sheet and we're like, great. And they're like, okay, cool. In, in addition to this, 
Sequoia actually just sent a partner down here full time. And he's like, you guys are in luck. The whole Sequoia partnership is coming down here to Southern California and, and you should come pitch to them. The next day I, I show up, I basically spend just 60 seconds explaining what AR is. They passed the headset around the room and everybody put on the fishbowl prototype and looked at the record and had the holographic experience. And they didn't make a decision right there, but I left, you know, I'm, I'm driving home and my heart's pounding and I'm waiting for the call and I get the call. You know, I answer the call. He asked me a couple questions. He said, great, we're going to invest. That was the ultimate level up I've ever experienced by 10 times, right? By an order of magnitude. Ben's rise was meteoric. The Mirror team started out as some scrappy college kids with an idea, but pretty soon Ben was living the American dream that his parents came to this country for. I want to dwell on this idea of leveling up. The euphoria that I think Ben feels is in the recognition of change. From minimal investment to closing their rounds in a few days is huge. It's an astronomical change in fortune. I also think that's why the basement ramen trope is so romanticized and accentuated. It's because that's a marker of how the company was at the bottom floor with no traction and all hope. The juxtaposition of basement ramen and closing a venture round underscores the feeling of leveling up. But something I've been wondering is, does it become harder to level up as your success continues? Of course, Ben will continue to grow, but those level up moments marked by massive change, I think those will become increasingly rare. Regardless, Mira had secured investment, and now they had to build a real company. Luckily, they had raised money at the peak of AR interest, but now they had to prove that this interest was valid. So we came to market uh, late 2017 with our first developer kit. And that's when we you know, did the whole press launch. We got all this amazing recognition for it. And it was, that was an incredible time. And it was such a well-designed product that we actually won the Red Dot Best of the Best award for it. That developer actually did very well. We sold thousands of units and we had folks, you know, pick up that device and try to build games with it or education demos or you name it, a lot of independent developers. And then we had a lot of big companies too, like big corporations. Um, they would buy a bunch of our headsets and they would start using it internally for their own kind of AR research. And so, you know, these companies to this day are still using our developer kits to build out those kind of AR interfaces. So we brought our kit to market and so the conversation now is no longer how do we get it it's this is great technology what should we do with it and so we started paying attention to what people were trying to do with the technology and we had a company with an office in like the middle of nowhere in australia uh, this company manufactured explosives for mines, very random. They bought one of our developer kits for a hackathon and they took one of their hard hats, cut out a chunk of the hard hat and hot glued our developer kit into the hard hat and sent us a proposal and said, your technology is incredibly accessible and it could seriously save lives here. 
they viewed our device as the first opportunity to guide the workers through what they should be doing, making sure they're doing it correctly and using the the headset to transfer the right knowledge to them on the job and use the camera to record some of the things that they're doing so that supervisors can help ensure that things are getting done correctly because we realized this, you know, wasn't unique to this company. This happens all across, you know, the industrial workforce. These types of tools are unlocked with augmented reality and our technology. And this was the first customer to show us that. This doesn't have to be science fiction anymore because you created a device that uses the phones that we already have. And that costs $99 so I can afford one for every worker. And that's what we dedicated the second version product to. It was building the industrial version of our same headset, still iPhone powered, still easy to use. And now we're seeing tremendous success and we've really gone from here's a an easy way to access AR to let's apply that to a serious problem and make a really big difference in the world. Staying true to their mission of accessibility and affordability, Ben found his niche. He managed to prove that augmented reality is not merely a toy for the rich. Contrary to the much derided Google Glass, this technology has essential real-world application. And at this point, all that potential, what investors raved about but didn't quite know what the heck it was, it materialized into something practical and life-saving. His method of design was somewhat backwards. He had built a technology without knowing exactly who his customers would be. But through this release, he had found unlikely customers in mining and defense. Now that he knew who his customer was, he had to humanize the product. He had to employ his empathy and think, how can I make this accessible to the average workman? This was the missing piece for Ben. He had the drive, the ambition, and the work ethic. But what his product needed was empathy. He needed a way to integrate his technology into the lives of everyday people. Seeing people use it is just the most incredible feeling. And we're so looking forward to that growing and these organizations scaling the use of it and us getting more users into our environment, into our operating system and being the first to actually build a mass market device. And, you know, maybe eventually it moves out of enterprise and into productivity and prosumer, maybe architects and education and eventually to the consumer. And we're excited to just keep going down that path and staying true to our mission of making it easy for anybody to use this technology. Augmented reality was a novelty, a faraway idea that wasn't attainable for the common consumer. Mira shattered this notion, bringing this technology closer to the average person, enabling it to impact people daily. His unparalleled work ethic and unwavering passion pushed this seemingly unreachable dream into a reality. The levels he has completed and surpassed have become dust in the wind. Previously, leveling up was validation for Ben, and now these milestones hold deeper meaning. He has reached the level where he is impacting lives. It sounds surreal that in such a short span of time, he's gone from making fishbowl lenses in a dorm room to mass distributing affordable augmented reality technology. With a solid foundation and direction for his product, Ben is making Mira bigger than himself. His technology can essentially impact and change the way we live our lives. If we were scared, imagine how many times in the story I just told you we would have quit. 
we would have quit the first time a pitch competition told us no. We would have quit the second time, the third time, the 10th time. We would have quit when we struggled to understand what our technology did in the market. As an entrepreneur, you face so many points where you are about to fail or there's such a risk of failure, fear of failure. And if you don't develop thick skin to that, you will not succeed. You will fail. And let me say it's okay to fail too. But if you're going to be afraid of that and then you fail and then you don't get back up, you're not going to make it happen. It's just never going to happen. You have to be so relentless and so fearless and you have to fight the urge to quit and you have to never give up and you have to be okay to fail and, and you have to be okay to take shit from people around you and you have to be able to defer judgment and, and you have to be able to you know not care if people think what you're doing is lame or whatever. You just have to keep going. Keep going. Ben's lifelong credo has remained steadfast. Don't quit. Don't quit when the kids make fun of you in the schoolyard. Don't quit when your friend's mom is the only one to vote for your project in a pitch competition. Don't quit when you're given the impossible task of creating a $100 AR headset and have to take it to market in four months. Bombarded with rejection after rejection, Ben remained undeterred. He refused to quit and instead used his failures as kindling for his success. Failure motivated him to fight harder and work harder. It's in our DNA to fear failure and rejection, yet Ben has defied this. They say that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. But tested time and time again, Ben never wavered. Ben was hardwired for battle at a young age. He is a warrior that faces failure head on. Failure has proven fatal to many, but Ben's resilience and laser focus allowed him to bear these wounds and achieve his goals. His immunity to failure was the foundation of his success. Ben started as an 11-year-old kid selling t-shirts to make money so that he could hang out with his friends. His dreams were not handed to him. They were earned. He always had ambition and drive, but it was through finding his purpose that he transcended these arbitrary levels humanized his product, and impacted society. Honestly, I'm super inspired. 